0: Welcome to an Ernie Ball podcast. It starts now. Hello, I'm Evan Ball. This is Striking a Chord, an Ernie Ball podcast. Today we're joined by Sinister Gates, guitarist for Avenged Sevenfold. He's kindly agreed to do two episodes with us, so look for a follow-up coming in the future. But today we'll talk about the band's early days, their formation in high school, the metal scene at the time, their early gigs. We talk about the double-edged sword of going against the grain and being musically adventurous. Sin discusses the albums that he feels were most crucial to the Avenged Sevenfold trajectory, the benefits and joys of expanding musical horizons, and his musical relationship with his dad. It's really cool to see the mutual influence and synergy that's come from their relationship. Also included in this episode, the Sinister Gates School, Parenthood, Justin Timberlake, and more. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Sinister Gates. I'm here with Sinister Gates of Avenged Sevenfold. Sinister Gates, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for doing it. I'd like to start out going back to the early days to see how this all came about. So high school, your singer, M. Shadows, The Rev, your original drummer, Mm -hmm. Were they playing under the name of n Sevenfold in high school?
1: They were, yeah. Okay. Um, the Rev joined kind of uh, a few months after the, uh, of confession, uh, conception. And then um, after a few, you know, inebriated house party uh, discussions, I think it was Val, Matt's wife, who convinced them to, to give me a shot, but they didn't want a lead guitar player in the band at the time. But yeah, it was okay. Zachy and uh, Zachy, Shads, and uh, the Rev that were jamming first. Are you guys all at the same high school? Uh no. I went to a different high school uh in Huntington as well as like moving back with my my father and I, I bounced back all over the place. Okay. A child of divorce. Okay. And that uh forced constant constant moving.
0: But you guys are all in Huntington Beach.
1: All in Huntington Beach. Around yeah. the same age? Yep. All okay. the same age, yeah.
0: Okay. So while they're in the, their band, are you in a rival band or are you yeah,
1: uh, I don't know what if it was a rival band. We, I, I, it was a head in the sand band. I was in a band called Pinkly Smooth with the Rev, and that's what we kind of started doing. I mean, the Rev was my best friend, and that's who I grew up playing music with. And he was just writing this insane instrumental piano stuff that I really didn't think would translate. I heard, I heard no me- melodies, no drumming. He just was playing these wild, wildly fantastical musical adventures on piano, and. He just like, was like, "I this is going to be music that we're going to have in a band. You want to join my band? And I was like, you don't have melody, drums, and what am I going to do, play guitar over this stuff? It's like piano um, opuses and shit like that. It's amazing stuff. And then the next day, he came with one of the most brilliant melodies I'd ever heard. I was like, this guy is fucking next level. Wow. It'd be an honor to put uh, some some guitar on this shit and ruin it.
0: You guys are playing in these different bands. Wait, is, is The Rev playing in both bands at this point?
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: And this is late 90s? Late
1: nineties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: I want to veer off track real quick just for fun. Um, so when I think of Huntington beach around this time, um, Tito Ortiz comes to mind <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> right? <laughs> and his rise in the UFC. Did he yeah. happen to be on your radar
1: at all? Um, or- we met him a couple of times, but uh, I wouldn't say that we're friends. We're obviously uh great admirers of him and uh, always rooting him on the uh, uh, HB boy, like hometown. So people were aware of school. it. At oh, absolutely yeah, absolutely! yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. We're all huge fans.
0: Nice. I asked because being in San Luis Obispo, we were on the, the parallel track, the Chuck Liddell. Oh yeah. So, so they had the friendship in the beginning, kind of turned to a rivalry. Yeah, yeah. But it was yeah that, that same totally. era,
1: so we were all really dialed into it. We were fans of Chuck too. You know, we we. I don't think we. It was so new and fresh to us when we were so young. It was just so yeah. cool to see absolute madness. It just was yeah. so much grittier than. Boxing at the time. You well, know? you guys had you guys had Tank Abbott
0: beating people up in Huntington Beach before that. Yeah.
1: He he was fucking with everybody we knew. You know, all the kids that were a little older than us. I mean, they were running out of getting chased out of bars by this guy. He this he just wanted to fight. Oh, he didn't give a fuck where he was so at, scary. who he was with. He just wanted to fight you. And the bigger you were, the worse off you had it. Yeah. It's crazy.
0: I wouldn't want to see that that guy hit so hard. A, yeah. A street fight. That's that's scary stuff. Yeah.
1: It's brutal.
0: All right. Back on track. So you're in high school, late nineties. What does the metal scene look like at this point? Cause, cause when I, th- what I think of is you're like peak new metal, quote new metal at this point. Is that kind of what's happening in the, in the there was a, heavier scene at this point?
1: Um, the more popular scene for sure. It was, it was kind of this new metal sort of thing. Um, I, again, just head in the sand. It was, there was a lot of hardcore, uh, bands that we were you know, um, kind of hanging with it certainly. Uh, Shadows was a, a big hardcore fan, and and just being friends with like James Hart from 18 Visions, and going to high school with some of those guys and stuff. It was guilt by association, you know, and and so that sort of thing took off. But I was listening to more of the like the Pantera's of the world, Megadeth, and stuff like that, and uh, Metallica to a certain extent, and um, and those that was everything to me, and yeah. I. I guess I didn't really listen to the radio that much until like system of down came out. Mm-hmm. I guess they're new metal too, but as a band that gets pigeonholed in like metalcore or whatever the fuck we've been called, you hate that. And yeah. to me, they're not new metal. They're just avant-garde brilliance. And that's when I started kind of listening to when the, when radio got a little bit more hip and, yeah. Pulled out some really cool shit.
0: So like the zeitgeist of the time, I'm interested if you guys ever had conflicted feelings early on about direction, where to go. Because you have this new breed of heavier bands. right? And then Avenged Sevenfold fairly quickly brings back a sound reminiscent of of hard rock, earlier metal, more shred. So I'm just wondering, it seems like a bold move to me at that point to come forward with the music you guys did guitar in your face. Yeah. So I am just wondering was there any social pressure to go in a non-shred direction in that era?
1: Well, I don't think there was any any pressure. I think that if there's anybody who kind of had this whole thing mapped out from the beginning, yeah. it would be it would be uh, Matt. He definitely has uh, has always had a, a a consciousness, a deep consciousness of who we are and where and where we want to go. Whereas I will just be nose in the books, writing music, working on my craft and whatever happens, happens and is fine to me. I just I think when I think about genres affecting me, it's it's about, you know, what era of classical music I'm into at the moment, or what era of jazz and how deep and complex do I want the harmony and and that's fine, but I guess it's it's certainly not the forest for the trees. You know, I'm kind yeah. of a, a a trees guy and and like to um, work on the next iteration, I guess, of what our music will be in more nuanced form where Matt definitely looks in this big ger- general direction. And, uh, and it's really it's really exciting to kind of have everything in between with all the different band members. You yeah. know. There's like the, the main vision of what we're going to want to do. And all that always changes, you know, as you start to write a song or even write a record what you intend is, is far from where it's at, but it gives you impetus. It gives you purpose. It gives you direction and fuel to get cranking. But for me to to answer the question directly, it was never about opposing forces or elitism or different types of, of music in the area. I was always just, uh, like I said, nose in the books, just working on, on my, my craft.
0: Yeah. But how about Matt? Do you think he had a sense that the people, whether they knew it or not were ready for some shred back in their lives?
1: Yeah. I think he's, he's always been good at, um, at seeing, you know, that, that old adage that, you know, where, you know, there nothing exists, exists opportunity. And, And we've always kind of known that. And so that with some, a little bit of fearlessness and maybe some liquid courage at some times we will write whatever the hell we want. And the more unique it is, the more excited we get. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's things that drive others in the band that just love the difference, love to piss people off, you know, and, and I can't lie. It's, it's a really cool feeling to be extremely polarizing on a large level at times. It's it's at first it, it's kind of like you read some of these things and kids hate you and it hurts your feelings, but that's the the model of of success. Love it or hate it. It yeah. really is.
0: I I I think of the so I worked on the Warp Tour in the early years and then yes. came back a few years later. I don't remember what year it was, but you guys were on. I just went to one show and you guys came on and there was such a juxtaposition between you guys and the other bands it was <laughs> yeah. awesome but it was just Thank you. unapologetic this is a rock show. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We were there first and foremost because we're fans of punk rock. Um and second, we were there to stand out. And we definitely knew that. So so I say, you know, nose in the books and all this kind of stuff which it definitely is, but yeah, I think we we knew when we stuck out like a sore thumb and most of the time that's what it was because the the music we were Deeply attracted to was maybe more punk rock, uh, different types of metal, rock and roll, and certain things. And and where we seemed to kind of play and enjoy trying to be a part of was definitely not similar to who we were as a band musically. Certainly. All right. So you you joined the band a couple of years out of high school. I joined at the end of uh, I think uh, I think I joined at the end of 1999. Maybe I was in high school. Oh, okay, school, so or pretty just, early, just out okay. of high school. Yeah, we all grew I, up as friends. And I thought stuff I heard like you just, went
0: to Musicians Institute and then came back and joined the band.
1: The, you know what? That's probably what it was. I only went for three months, though. Okay. But yeah, so I went two different years, one for three months, and then um, thought I'd just get all all the musical knowledge in three months. You know, it's fucking being dumb in eighteen, um, and then started playing with them. So probably by the no, as two thousand, I think I joined in early two thousand. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. So what are those early Avenged Sevenfold? Gigs look like? Are you guys playing house parties? Is, are there certain clubs around Orange County all, that you All hit of the
1: above. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Coos Cafe, Shea Cafe, uh, house parties, Santa Ana, um, like clubs, but old houses, you know, transformed into little venues and yeah, wherever we could play. And they were just small and nobody, nobody gave a shit. The closer to home, the more friends we had. Yeah. And so it looked cool and felt cool. But the minute that, you know, it was out of the friends, uh, travel, um, acceptabilities <laughs> then it was just empty shows. but yeah. you
0: you built up a pretty loyal fan base around Huntington Beach.
1: We definitely did. I mean it, it took a long, long time, and we had some really good help from bands like from Modern Dashes to that took us out on our first tour and and others. Um, we owe a lot of of that early success to them and just being really, really cool and non elitist in a very elitist culture, which kind of hardcore was at the time. It was very familial, but it was hard to to break into that scene you know, and especially if you did anything different. Yeah. Fucking hated you.
0: Okay. So your third album, uh, City of Evil was put out on a major label. I'm wondering, is, was this a notably different experience? What, what kinds of things change when you're on a major label?
1: Fortunately for us and, and thankful to them, not much. Also, unfortunately, not much financially too, because it was just a different, different era. You know, we had just missed, that late 90s single equals platinum record in your fucking, in, in your golden. Um, it was definitely still a struggle and we released our most ambitious effort. They signed us for Waking the Fallen and then we went and wrote City of Evil, uh, an ostensibly zero hit compendium of just absolute madness. And we got very fortunate uh, that the right we were in kind of the right place and right time. That back country took off, you know? It was one of those things that was different on the radio and they were really accepting of of uh, of going against the grain, you know, when it worked, and with that aligning of the stars, it it took off. But nothing changed as far as like nobody bought houses then. It it, it was the same continuous progression. Nothing felt yeah. overnight. Yeah, you know, I think we all had maybe thirty grand in our pockets, um, which is which is great. It's a great payday when you have nothing in your pocket. In fact, most of us owed money, but that doesn't buy you even a nice car, really. You know, and most of us. We're pretty uh, pretty savvy with our money, or at least we saved it. We didn't blow anything. Um, we saved maybe a, a drinking reserve. You know, we'd come home after a tour and buy all the friends drinks and stuff like yeah. that. But uh, other than that, we saved all of our money, and, and so there was no big um, big blowout buys or anything like that. So life just remained the same. You know, we lived at our parents' house uh, until a couple of years later, and but we had a gold record, and our songs were being played everywhere. It's kind of
0: yeah. kind of weird. Can you think back and 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 think of significant periods? or even even specific moments maybe fortuitous moments that propelled the band forward.
1: Yeah, I think there's certain things that are that I've looked back on and just thought of as um Im- immense investments in our career and um and that was definitely one of them. Uh, that that kind of that showed more obvious returns, I guess. which which one? Uh City the, of Evil okay. probably. Yeah. Um whereas uh some and, and like the records like the uh, the White Album or our self uh, uh-huh. or eponymous record or whatever the fuck you call it. That one and the stage, I think, didn't show immediate return, but I think the uh, the self-titled record is like a fan favorite. And, you know, the stage, which had pretty much zero singles and pissed off a lot of people, had some of the most amazing events, you know, in our history. We played the top Capitol Records on top of that building. Um, it was our highest acclaimed record um by... All the different publications and stuff, and bands or fanzines and different uh, magazines, webzines and stuff that hated us for the Huntington Beach culture kind of came back around when they saw, you know, more, a more substantive look at life and outer space and fucking what happens next and all this kind of shit because the stage was just to me a lyrical masterpiece. I feel like I can kind of say that because I didn't write anything <laughs> lyrically, and uh, and it's just it's so I don't know. So those kind of investments kind of anchored us as a band. I feel like the songwriting that Jimmy put out on display on the self-titled is just, it's magical. It's fucking magical. I mean, we have, in my humble opinion, a Bohemian Rhapsody because of Jimmy and because of, of our self-titled in a, a Little Piece of Heaven that is just by far the fan favorite. Everywhere you fucking go, they scream it, need to hear it, and it's... uh. It's a it's a crazy beast of a thing. So, but it's not you know it didn't that song didn't make us a bunch of money. It wasn't a single. It wasn't this. It was just an investment in in the longevity and the depth of your career.
0: Right. Gotcha. So real quick, you mentioned on the stage. So who
1: who was who was angry
0: about the stage or who was hating it and why?
1: It was a very polarizing record. I mean, it's it's a very deep record um, harmonically, melodically, lyrically. Um, it's definitely not for the faint of heart. If you're a fan of backcountry country and that's what got you into. Avenged you probably don't give a fuck about the stage. Um but if like a betrayed or strength of the world got you in, then then it's probably your favorite record and I get that from a lot of people that I talk to that are deeper fans, I guess, and certainly more m- musically inclined fans have nothing but praise uh which is very rewarding yeah. uh, of the stage because that's probably my proudest work. So know, some, some
0: fans want you to stay in the lane that they prefer. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's yeah.
1: fine and I I, I don't uh, hate them for that or even lament that at all i totally i was like that growing up you know but yeah you just it's can't. just
0: taste that's that's how it goes I, exactly all right so today do you guys all have kids now
1: we do we all have kids what's tons the, of kids all right what's the age range um i think brooks's kids are the oldest at eight years old now i believe it's, time flies it's crazy um and uh and then everything down to i have a kid coming in one week <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. or so they say
0: yeah, yeah. okay so, so are Avenge Sevenfold shows and events uh, more of a family affair now?
1: Definitely. Definitely. And, and thank God. It's going gonna, it's gonna <laughs> to keep your favorite or most unfavorite uh, band around for a lot longer. <laughs> right. Fortunately or unfortunately for you.
0: So was there a time when you guys were at your wildest? Was there a the time where you guys were most embracing of the rock star life?
1: Uh, I don't know if we thought about it in in terms, but I mean, you just unleash some already crazy kids across the globe, and um, with millions of uh, adoring fans and uh, tons of places to get in trouble at, and late nights, nobody tell you to go to bed. And sounds wonderful. Uh, it it was wonderful. It was it was scary for sure. And looking back on it, and who knows what poor investments we made in our livers, but uh, only time will tell. But yeah, it was pretty brutal in uh, you know in the mid two thousands. For sure, mid to late two thousands.
0: Okay. Yeah. So back to the kids. There, you actually have <laughs> <Thank> uh, <God. laughs>
1: back to the back to the
0: present. Some of the kids are actually cousins, and yes, right? so yes, have, yes, uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, it, we're also close that they definitely all feel like cousins. They love each other very much. But yeah, um, um, Matt and I are married to twin sisters, and we live you know a stone's throw away from each other. And his two kids with uh, my one kid and future other kid, um, yeah. are crazy close. That's like, awesome. My my kid like all older brothers to me in my experience are classic older brothers. And that goes this for without saying for all these different kids except for my kid who is by far a younger brother to his cousins, his brothers, Cash and River. Yeah. And Matt's kids. I mean, he just he's such a little copycat, just tag-along annoying little brother. He just loves them so much and he's just a little sensitive guy, he just wants but he's a bruiser too, like a sensitive little bruiser. He just wants hugs and kisses at all costs. That's so cool. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. So, who started dating whom first? Um, Matt and Val, are, I think, are like middle school sweethearts. Oh, really? So yeah, from oh, okay. like seventh, sixth grade, maybe. And um, uh, and Michelle and I've been friends forever. And then you know, after high school, we just you know one one thing leads to another, and okay. just friends so start start hanging out. back a while. <laughs> okay,
0: awesome. All right, you guys have had Brooks Wackerman on drums for a while now. How did this come together?
1: Well, uh, we were kind of in in need of a drummer. Um, we've we've had a lot of amazing help since uh, the Reb passed from uh, Mike Portnoy to Aaron Illahai. I mean, inc- incredible, incredible drummers. Um, but we just uh, we felt like we wanted to go a, a different cur- uh, direction. And we felt that um, that Brooks was absolutely the right guy. And uh, fortuitously, we had heard through the grapevine through a, through a mutual friend of ours, um, Deioni Sepulveda, who's our manager, tour manager, that he was pretty much done with Bad Religion, looking for other gigs, kind of. Um, and then I, I can't really speak for him exactly how that worked out, but we uh, we had a meeting, and he he was very interested, and we had been fans, um, like huge Bad Religion fans, Vandals, um, and this guy just just brilliant energy, and we all grew up listening to punk rock, and we just missed that bombastic caution of the wind energy that that this guy had that jimmy had as a huge fan of like no effects and all these different guys so we wanted that energy and to date he's he has only uplifted this band and, and provided extra energy when when it's needed you know
0: yeah is it true wackerman's are actually born with drumsticks in their hands
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly if they if they want to eat cereal in the morning they have to fucking do their rudiments yeah um yeah just the the pedigree is just next level I mean, they're all just savants and wizards of their craft.
0: Yeah, for listeners who don't know, so his oldest brother Chad Wackerman Chad. is just plays stuff that's over most human beings' heads.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. With Frank Zappa and uh, the late great, one of my favorite guitar players of all time, uh, Alan Hol- Alan Holdsworth. And uh, just just a monster.
0: A yeah. monster. And there's more of them, right? I think his, his dad was a drum teacher. Yeah, and-
1: dad's a drums teacher, still teaching at OSHA in his mid-80s. I mean, another fucking savant, insane. I believe Bob plays bass, I, I want to say, and is just a fucking next-level bass player and just tons of talent.
0: So if you could give Brooks Wackerman a stage name, what would it be?
1: Brooks Wackerman.
0: <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> kind of works for a drummer.
1: Yeah. How do your
0: musical tastes differ in the band?
1: Well, historically, they've, always differed pretty greatly um, with, you know, some, what is that? Uh, anyway, those two fucking graphs that. Oh, the Venn diagram. the, the Venn Yeah, <laughs> the Venn diagram. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like a Venn diagram. Yeah. So that you have your own stuff and that's the majority of the stuff that you listen to. And and usually it inflects uh, deep grievance on the road. You know, historically when you're listening, you're driving, you get to listen to your music and the others are trying to sleep. And I, I won't, I won't name names and uh, bespurge other bands or other preferences, but, but it can keep you up at night. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Some of those things are kind of funny, but, um, but now presently, I mean, we're, I I just think we're just so much more open-minded. There comes a point in your life where you want to be exposed to new music and you're looking forward to getting in, into something new. You know, for me, I'm 38 years old. I've consumed so much music, you know, as it being part of my profession to, to do so as well. Um, that you just you're constantly looking for new stuff, so you're you're less picky. You're certainly less elitist, and you can always kind of find something something good. The, the challenge is to keep that that highly discerning quality um, that you had in your youth when you kind of knew exactly who you were and didn't give a fuck about anybody else. And I think still, fortunately, we're, we're still very strong in, in that department. But yeah, so now we listen to a lot of the same same things. Like Matt grew up listening to Pink Floyd. I was not a Pink Floyd fan growing up. And now I couldn't be more obsessed with him. Um, I, I recently got Matt into Stevie Wonder. Listening to Stevie Wonder and all sorts of stuff. Uh, Zachy got me into Lana Del Rey and different things. And uh, Jimmy and maybe Johnny have introduced me to Justin Timberlake. I never knew who that was uh, before six months ago. Now I'm obsessed.
0: Well, you didn't but, know who he was? No, nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I definitely, <laughs> always a fan,
1: but never like a deep, great appreciation for for this monster of a talent, you know? Yeah. Um, but things like, things like that. And so you're just always open to having that, oh my God, I cannot put the headphones down type of moments.
0: Yeah, sometimes you dismiss these huge pop icons, but then there's there's usually a reason why somebody rises to the top.
1: Completely, completely.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, then come back and talk about Sin's guitar playing. Going on now at Guitar Center, the Ernie Ball Great Gear Giveaway, where one lucky winner will win over $50,000 in prizes from Ernie Ball Music Man, SKB, Electro Voice, Dynacord, Train, Vic Firth, Latin Percussion, Zildjian, Tune Track, Guitar Center, DNA Guitar Gear, DW, Remo, TC Electric. Blue Microphone, Universal Audio, Ampeg, Orange Amplifiers, JHS Pedals, Korg, Martin Guitar, and Ernie Ball. To enter, find codes inside select packs of Ernie Ball strings in Guitar Center stores and at GuitarCenter.com between now and October 30th, 2019. U.S. residents only? Visit ErnieBall.com slash Great Gear Giveaway for full official rules. Ernie Ball presents the Great Gear Giveaway going on now only at Guitar Center. All right. So I just registered a couple of days ago for the Sinister Gates School. <laughs> Wonderful. So awesome. I was uh prepping for this interview. So I looked in there and I had to pry myself away just mm. so I could continue prepping. But so much cool stuff in there. Maybe I'll let you talk about it. Yeah. It's um, a partnership between you and your dad.
1: Right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, very exciting. It's uh we're actually doing a full renovation right now. Some of the code, source code got hijacked. So it's building anything is is next level. It's uh you have to be super passionate about it. And, and then when it does come to fruition, like your, your passions just blossom. And then you see these kids having opportunities that you never had growing up. And that's been the main, main thing. It's really not about 200 or so lessons that we have. Um, although I'm proud of, of that number. Um, especially for a free school, but it's all about the community. Anybody who says you can learn some something or play like somebody else in 23 videos is either lying or completely ignorant to the fact that uh, there's so much nuance and so many relatable gems that one teacher can't teach. And so what we've really tried to implement was putting a, a teaching hat on all of the students of all levels, shapes, and sizes. And I found that beginner students have been the greatest, uh, contributors to a lot of the stuff. And that's what you hope for. You know, the beginner students are sharing their Eureka moments that I've long forgotten with all these other kids. And there's a few different ways of how you go about these Eureka moments that resonate differently with all these different kids. Then all of a sudden you're expediting growth in their formative years, which is, which is huge. They're, they're not going to have to unlearn any bad habits, like bad timing because they all know to, to play with a metronome, you know, and that's the only way to do it. And there's so many more examples of just really fundamental tricks and techniques that you will just, you know, alleviate so much future pain and suffering on yeah. learning these things. And and so the community has been it. And so that's where we're really focusing our growth and consideration and, and time. And it's, uh, it's really paying off. We're seeing some insane turns of events here, and it's only going to get better.
0: Is there a, a common stumbling
1: block that you can think of that comes to mind that keeps coming up in the community? Yeah, just frustration that that it takes too long.
0: You know, I yeah. mean, if,
1: it, if there's one thing, and it's the first time I've actually ever said that, it's a great question because there's maybe a bunch of similar, but the basic thing that frustrates people is not getting there as fast or, or regression, you know? or But pretty much the same thing, like, why am I not getting better? I'm putting in the hours. I'm putting in this, I'm putting in that. And there's usually two, two variables, you know, it's you have to enjoy the process and understand that if it was easy, everybody would do it, you know? And it's it's not. It's one of the hardest things in the world. Doing anything well is the hardest thing in the world. And then two, you're probably doing it wrong. If you're never getting to that point, if you're spending a year on a major scale and you haven't figured out how to run through a major scale, you're probably practicing it wrong or don't understand the application of a major scale. So that's what the community is there to do, is to support. Let you know that these are the horror stories that come with it. It took me forever and my fingers were bleeding. And I, then I had to, I got a job and I had to take six months off. And all of a sudden I came back to it. And I couldn't even play the fucking guitar. Like horror stories to these kids. And then also, wow, this thing completely reinvented my approach to this and that. And this is how I got it. This was my Eureka moment. And it'll resonate with certain kids and other kids will need somebody else's Eureka moment. But that community is what gets you through all the different videos. It's not the videos.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I haven't even jumped into the community yet. So yeah. I'll just type the videos real quick. Cause I, that's <laughs> what I noticed. I mean, it's just a, a treasure trove of, Thank you. of content of, of value. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it made me want to go back to square one. I've, there's so many gaps in my playing well, and my knowledge, like all these videos fun. sound interesting. So I'm going to go yeah. back and work through it. And that. then, so, the the, so that. your dad does bulk of those teaching videos and then you offer up a ton of licks, different yeah. riffs, different yeah. techniques. So it's a really cool combination yeah. of you guys. I assume he was your first teacher.
1: Yeah, absolutely, first, second, and probably last teacher. Um, we have a blues series coming out, and he's he's doing this whole blues series. So the the whole first 175 videos were were a collaboration, <clears throat> and then I just kind of said. Just make sure you get some chords in on this and make sure, you know, you get a little out because uh, blues lends itself to jazz very much. So, Um, so, so get a little depthier harmonically. And other than that, he laid out 21 really full length videos of blues playing. And it's just things that I've forgotten over the years or never even learned. I mean, it's just, it's so deep. And it just, the thing about blues that you don't realize is it's everywhere. It's in pop, it's in jazz, it's in, it's in blues, it's in country, it's, it's everything. It's everything. If you want to play minor blues, you can kind of shift that pentatonic up, and then you're playing major blues. I mean, it's all very, very relative. It's all very basic, yet very pervasive throughout any genre of music. So, being
0: of two different generations, I assume you guys grew up learning some different stuff. But does he ever now come
1: to you for lessons on on metal riffs? He used to, and then and then he outgrew me. <laughs> <laughs> He's we kind of outgrew each other at different at different points in time. He's always told really. Appreciate it. I very much appreciate his stories about him listening and saying, Oh, that's a pretty cool thing, and then going and working it out to the point where he couldn't work things out that I was working on, you know, when I was going to MI and different things like that. Yeah. And so he'd ask me, you know, what the fuck are you playing there? And then I'd show him and then he'd, you know, reinvent it into something else and that I had no clue what he was doing. But it's always been a back and forth process. I think the thing that I've really appreciated about him is that he approaches music from a songwriter's perspective, which is what I've always tried to do, which I, I think he appreciates about me. And that's, you got to focus on motif and melody and, and and harmony. And the solo, the attempt is that the solo is as strong as the the melody and lyrical content of the song. You know, you want to write a great song first and then write a great song, solo second that completely complements your hopefully great song. Yeah. Yeah, how old were you when you started? I believe I was eight or nine years old when I oh, okay pretty early. Yeah, when I was first serious, I mean, music was in the house. I think I picked up a guitar as early as like four or five or something like that, or maybe even earlier. My dad was a musician, you know, well before I was born, a successful musician. He was playing with Frank Zappa probably five or six years before I was born. He was seventeen playing with the Absolute Cats. So music was all all that I knew growing up. I always knew that that's what I would do, you know, for for better or for worse, at some capacity. Um, so yeah it, it was all always there for me So
0: if you look back at the earliest event sevenfold albums, do you feel like you're you're you've continued to progress playing wise and if so in what ways?
1: Yeah, definitely I've definitely attempted at least to broaden my horizons always trying to do something a little bit different. The one thing that I, I do kind of pride myself in is that, I'm a pretty well-rounded player. The problem with that is that you, you don't want to be a dilettante uh, or a mere dab hand, as they say, at a bunch of different styles, you know? Um, so you have to know who you are and what your DNA is. But but I love jazz. I love country. I love classical. There's so many different techniques that apply to all these different things. So you might find all of the necessary metal techniques that, or you feel that they're, they're the necessary metal techniques in your early 20s if that's what you're going for. But then you want to be innovative on those things. And then that takes... 10 years of just strictly devoting um, applying yourself to the practice of innovation and then you have to get fucking lucky to do something that nobody else has ever done before you know and that's kind of a for me an important thing to pursue and I'm not so sure that I've done that even <laughs> but I pursue it um, and you won't get that way if you spread yourself too thin but if you don't apply jazz if you don't apply country and you don't apply the blues and all these different uh genres and immerse yourself in it, then you're you're just going to be a replica of yourself and and others, and you'll never be you truly, and that's the main thing. And being exposed to all that music, I was just so fortunate that my dad played everything in the world. So jazz, I didn't have to pick up jazz by force. Um, I just naturally loved it because it was in my house playing since I was a little kid. Same with classical, country, the Beatles, whoever.
0: Yeah, that's so cool that you can practice in all those. Different genres, and
1: then bring it to a band like Avenged Sevenfold. Yeah, that's that's the true true gift. Is that you know I can apply all those things in uh, in my day job.
0: <laughs> Do you practice a lot now? A
1: lot less, to be honest. Um, Wait till your next kid comes. I know it's <laughs> literally it's kids it's uh, it's business it's I'm um, I'm really obsessed with songwriting I saw I write music all the time constantly writing music I'm constantly playing through different tones I'm obsessed with the axe effects there's so many unique different different colors to paint with there that it's 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 like beginning to play guitar all over so I'm extremely excited about that so as far as like the quest for innovation songwriting and uh, and taste that's still there. But scales and like jazz harmony, classical harmony, um, the stuff that I was obsessed with a year ago um, for the previous five years, it was all about that. Um, there hasn't been much of, of that at all, to be honest. What do you like to do apart from music, hobbies, sports, TV shows oh, you like? Man, um, so many wonderful things in my life have fallen to the wayside for uh <laughs> for family and music. Um, but but it's great. I mean, I I loved jujitsu. I did that for about five years and I was excelling and doing, doing really well. And then this, you know, very green, very small white belt just about broke my thumb, landed on it. And he couldn't have been more than 140 pounds as a little kid and it was irresponsible of me to kind of throw this little kid around you know and just like working all my brand new uh brand new moves and and it, it bit me in the ass and so i couldn't play guitar for 2 months and i was just completely swollen uh swollen shut for lack of a better term i couldn't move my thumb and then my feet started hurting when i was doing muay thai and so all those like bruiser manly men sort of uh sort of hobbies kind of fell to the wayside but surfing has been my my side piece for my entire life. That's I, I love to surf and and that's not because I've gotten hurt or this or that. It's just because time, with the the school and Avenge Sevenfold and all these things, they they'd family and it just doesn't allow for, you know, my mornings need to be spent with my my kid and, and my future kid in the next couple of fucking days.
0: Do you have a solo song album? Maybe all three that you're most proud of.
1: I'm very proud of a lot of the work on the stage. It's been like a couple of years since I heard Sunny Disposition. And I just heard that the other day and it made me laugh. That solo just made me laugh. I had the biggest smile because I knew I was just having so much fucking fun in the studio, just writing the most ridiculous little fucking excerpt of music. And that song is the most ridiculous little excerpt of, of music, you know, apart from the stage. And it was just, <laughs> it just reminded me of a, a very, very happy time where art wasn't sacrificed at all. Yeah, you know
0: that's cool. We'll link to that in the show notes. What gauge strings do you use?
1: Ten to fifty-two historically. Although uh, we're going to see what happens. Maybe seven to to fifty-six. Seven <laughs>
0: people. Do you hear that? Seven gauge. Yeah, because we're uh,
1: we're working on a on some funny business here. I think we were talking about it a little bit earlier. We got a fretless, headless eight string with a high A string and a low G string. So the the middle of that is the your typical standard uh, six string. Um, and then we have a low G and a high A.
0: So you keep the ten to fifty two, skinny top, heavy bottom in the middle. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And then maybe even I, I like um, the lower the lower strings pitch wise to um, to be a little bit thinner too. So I might have two fifty twos. I don't know. I love dropping a fifty two to to an A. Do you play
0: Cobalt or the standard Slinkies? Nickel. Been Wild? playing
1: Paradigm's recently. Paradigms, okay. You know they're just they they keep the tonality and um, they're just strong as fuck. They're incredible.
0: Nice. Can you name three albums that were influential for you?
1: Oh my god. Or however many hell, you want. Hell yeah. Um Mr. Bungle's Eponymous Record, the self titled is a yeah. masterpiece, and that just that changed my entire life. Probably for the worse. <laughs> Definitely not think so. for the better. <laughs> uh that that is my that is my go-to. Um that is the quintessential melange of depth meets most approachable melody. I mean it's just so melodic. Mike Patton, right when he's just out beyond out, just hits these Stevie Wonder style bluesy RB melodies that just fucking wet the panties. He's fucking, he is absolutely next to next level when it comes to taking such deep and abstract avant-garde harmony and just making it so approachable and so musical. It'll take you a week or two to get there, you know, if you're if you're more of a pop guy, but I promise you you'll get there. And that fucking record is is nonstop. My North Star is uh, you know, as a whole is the Beatles. My North Star individually is is Paul McCartney. And so, um, I mean, pick a Beatles record. I don't care if it's um, early, middle, or late stage Beatles. It's yeah. it's all just masterpiece, harmony, melodic, uh, tension and release, fucking brilliance. I'd have to say that Abbey Road fucking stole my heart. But uh, yeah. And then third- Is your
0: dad a huge Beatles guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Both of our favorite bands. Okay. For sure. For sure. Sergeant Peppers, I mean, absolute masterpiece. Uh, do a lot of studying uh, with that record but I think Abbey Road just speaks to me a little bit more. I love the adventurous nature of the, the medley and the ending, and it's just incredible. For sheer brutality and what I've always said is the raping and pillaging of, of guitar, I'd have to go with uh, Far Beyond Driven by Pantera. Okay. I mean, Dime, just what he, how he expressed himself, I, I still don't get it. There's a yeah. lot of things that you can, you can mimic or maybe think that you can mimic uh, musically if you spend enough time. So Dimebag, huge
0: inspiration for you for for sure yeah for sure what do
1: you take from him absolute 110 percent control of emotion on his instrument if he feels it it's just there there's no block from mind to tips of his fingers it's just it's just there He absolutely commands the guitar
0: and are you picturing solos when you say that everything everything
1: absolutely everything yeah riffs solos yeah
0: yeah yeah so creative melodic on his solos
1: insane note selection yeah yeah yeah
0: all right, do you have a, a favorite social media platform or, or how do you, how should people find out what's going on?
1: I guess I do. I, I'm definitely more familiar with Instagram, although my last post was a couple of months ago and it was this 10-year-old fucking shredder kid, Jaden uh, Tascatiore. I, I'm, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but yeah, 10-year-old kid. I think he's on Rock of Ages in Australia right now, but just he played one of my hardest solos uh, in Not Ready to Die. Crazy sweeps and weird things going on as well as like legato. It's just a blend of all these kind of funky techniques and he's 10 and he nails it. That's crazy. Nails it, I'm yeah. talking, like vibrato, inflection, nuance, emotion. He's a, he's a wow. freak. Yeah yeah, 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 so.
0: And what's, what's the URL for your school?
1: Syngates.com.
0: Okay, S-Y-N-Gates.com. Right. Sinister Gates, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure, it was a lot of fun. All right. We went places. Thanks again for tuning in to Striking chord. We really appreciate the kind reviews that have come through. If you'd like to contact us, you can email strikingacord at ernieball.com. Also, some of you might have noticed that there's usually a short bonus clip that plays at the very end of each episode, like right after this announcement. So why not stick around for a few more seconds? Personal guitar lesson right here. When would you do economy picking and when would it be alternate picking? Like, how would you decide in a riff
1: that could be played either way? Um, Does whatever, that make sense? Whatever. Yeah. So alternate picking, yes, absolutely. Alternate picking can kind of be a little harsher. And if you want that deep, like John Petrucci big run, then you might want big, aggressive alternate picking thing. Also, if it's easier to play with alternate picking, play, you know, I altered alternate pick a lot of different things but when i'm navigating through the abyss of what you're trying to to say and create it's an amalgam of, of everything you know it's it's really just a mixture of both when you've been doing both techniques for a long time you stop thinking about those things so until that happens i would Im- implore you to do to do both try and try in both ways try to master that riff with both different styles and, and see what happens